Good morning, church. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my pleasure to be able to be with you and bring to you um, God's word. And so um, I just want to ask you to pray with us. Uh, Pray for me. Pray for yourselves as we ask the Holy Spirit to be doing a great work in our hearts and in the lives of our church. God, you are extremely good. We are so thankful that you are so intimately involved in every part of our lives. Walking through this series, we've seen so many different ways how you've intentionally interwoven yourselves to make, to make yourself known through the gifts that you have given us. And we pray today as we talk about the most important gift to Jesus, that we're able to see rightly who he is and what he means for us. We have just declared to you through song that we need you. And there are a number of us in this room that know exactly what we mean when we declare that. We know where we are weak. We know where our pain is. We know where our doubt is. And when we sing to you, we need you. We know exactly where we need you to fit in. And there's many others of us in this room that sing this song out of uh, honor and respect to you, but yet we may have no clue where we need you today. And I pray that you would make that super clear to every single one of us. As we unpack a story that many of us may be familiar with, I pray that you help us personalize what it means when Jesus became the Messiah in its fullest sense for us and how we today are able to feel the weight and the effect of that in our lives and be able to live it out for the glory of your name in the world. Glorify yourself today as we um, are together worshiping you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. As Matt has mentioned um, during our prayer time, and Draith has also mentioned, today uh, is Palm Sunday. And so as we dive into Hebrews chapter 2, it is good for us to just pause and recognize what exactly that means on the biblical calendar. And so the week before Jesus was crucified and, uh, and buried and resurrected, uh, he entered into Jerusalem. This is the day that we celebrate that he walks himself into Jerusalem. Actually, he doesn't walk himself. He's sitting on a donkey uh, and he is working his way into Jerusalem for the very last time. He knows full well what this means. He is going towards his death. He knows he's not never going to leave Jerusalem. As he is walking his way, uh, uh, working his way on the donkey into Jerusalem, he is surrounded by um, a multitude of disciples lining the streets, which are laying palm branches before him, which is where we get the name Palm Sunday, uh, and just crying out to him, Hosanna, blessed be the name of our King who comes. And really what they are screaming, whenever they're screaming Hosanna, uh, that they are saying, God save us, God save us. And uh, they rightfully had Jesus in this king place, but they wrongly understood what it meant when Jesus was our king. So that is what today is really celebrating as we journey our way into next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday. This event of Palm Sunday, of Jesus journeying into Jerusalem, began to unfold the events of the Passion Week, which 
obviously has ended with his brutal death. This morning uh, is the fourth week of this series that we've been in as we've journeyed through this Lent season together. Uh, We have looked at uh, three key elements which um, are extremely weighty on their own, and it has been um, extremely fun and beneficial to be able to see uh, each piece of uh, of these themes and, and how God uses them to glorify himself within our lives. If you look on the screen behind us, the, the very top icon represents creation. We talked about um, God being creator of all things. We talked about how he's driving us secondly into relationship. Last week, we talked about the importance of faith. And God talks about these key elements all throughout scripture. And again, um, it's been extremely fun to be able to, to focus on these and see what God is doing, as he's, how he has littered scripture with these four themes to point us to himself. But these three themes that we've talked about over the last three weeks cannot stand fully and ultimately on their own. What God is doing whenever he is speaking about these things is he is actually pointing to a greater reality. He is pointing to the Messiah. He is pointing to Jesus coming. And these key elements are all interwoven and stand even stronger whenever we see it in light of the Messiah, which scripture points to as the apex of all of history. The climax of all of creation is found in this week that we get to celebrate, starting with Palm Sunday, working our way into Good Friday, and ending with our Easter celebration. The main point of today's sermon comes from a challenge, really. The challenge for us is do not become apathetic to the power of the Easter story. This is not an accusation by any means. This is a general, uh, a, a gentle persuasion because it is easily done to become so apathetic of the great power that it lies within inside of the Easter story. Um, working in youth ministry, one of my greatest challenges that I've faced in the past 15, 16 years is walking with students. As they enter into our youth ministry, they know a lot of the right answers. A lot of our students have, uh, have worked their way all the way through from preschool up into our youth ministry. And whenever a question is asked of them, they have been trained, they've been trained to think about the right answer. And there's always one right answer to every question that is ever asked. And if you worked in children's ministry and youth ministry, you know what that answer is. Please tell me what that answer is. Absolutely. You cannot go wrong. That's like the Trump, right? Right there. You cannot go wrong by saying that is the answer. And that's real and it's good and it's mostly right. But there's no application. There's no fruit from that, from that, that answer that they're giving that says, whenever I walk away from Sunday morning, I know how to apply this to my life and I know how to walk with Jesus. Again, we've been trained to give all the right answers, but we lack the ability to be able to apply God's word to our life. And whenever uh, I've watched many, many students graduate high school and either become extremely legalistic in their faith because, or in their faith because their faith is all about a bunch of rules, or they become so disillusioned with the church because everything that they've been taught or heard or led has been just that, nothing that has ever actually been personally applicable to their lives. And it's painful to watch. That's not just a student thing, that's an adult thing as well for us to become apathetic 
towards the great power that lies behind the Easter story. For others of us, Jesus uh, entered into our lives a lot later in our lives after high school. But since we've experienced a lot of life in the grind of keeping our heads above water, parenting, making sure you don't kill your kids, to the job, making sure the paycheck continues to come in, and wanting to earn a better paycheck next year by doing your job good and well. This isn't a bad thing to be able to want to move up within your job status, right? Parenting, our job, paying the bills, etc., on and on and on. These life experiences had the tendency to rob us from the joy that we experience in Christ because we become so fixated on, should we say, the problem and we um, forget to look at the ultimate solution and we find ourselves in an apathetic cycle of forgetting to focus our attention on Jesus in a daily way. This past week, I found myself in one of those spiritual slumps. If you know me uh, at all, you know that I'm an extremely emotional person. Uh, I'm uh, hyper um, relational, and I feel lots of things. Uh, I think a lot of guys don't operate in this area. I'm a lot. I'm very secure in who I am, and I know that I have tons of feelings. I don't always know how to identify these feelings as a male, but I know that they are there. And this past week was one of those weeks that I was on this journey of just feeling. Um, should I say, spiritually low. If you know what I'm talking about, this is not just a spiritual connection. This is connected to every part of our life. I found myself at the beginning of this week being extremely grumpy. Stop judging me. You know that you feel grumpy too at times. (laughs) It was one of those moments when uh, I knew that I have ruined everything that was good in my life, right? It's those moments that, that I, I look at my kids and I know that they're going to grow up and hate me because of the way that I've been treating them. I, I look at my wife in the way that she looks at me in my grumpy state and I know she's finally realized the man that I really am today and uh, she is just going to find a way to be able to just um, uh, work her way through just being my wife. She's given up on me. I feel like, how in the world would God ever want anything to do with me whenever I find myself in this state? I mean, this is not just a once in a lifetime or a very random thing that happens in my life. Because I'm relational and emotional, this seems to be a common occurrence in my life where I find myself in these uh, places that um, are, can be extremely dark. Looking back at it, I can see now that I felt extremely unlovable in a lot of ways, it's because of the choices I was making. I felt extremely unlovable. I knew that I was in this cycle. I knew I was grumpy. But I knew that I couldn't get out of this grumpy state. and that I couldn't just will myself out of it. I tried a couple days in a row. I was like, I'm, I'm going to be happy today. <laughs> it doesn't work out very well. This is a spiral, again, I know all too well. 
Uh, Galatians 5.1, I know scripture well, when Paul says to us, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm. That is a, phrase, that is a, a short phrase that he uses frequently. In um, Galatians, um, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, it is used seven times to stand firm. I did not feel like I was able to stand firm in these moments. My life actually reflected the opposite. I was metaphorically sitting in the corner pouting, and I just couldn't find my way out of it. Tuesday morning, I was at the end of my emotional rope. I wish I could say I had some big revelation that Jesus just entered into, and I spent hours with Jesus worshiping and praising, and I am the new man that I am today. Well, that's not exactly what happened. But I did start my day off and I said, I'm done with this. I know I can't run any further. I know I feel unlovable, which makes me not want to run to Jesus. I want to run away from Jesus. But I started off my day and said, okay, I'm going to wake up a little earlier than normal and I'm going to spend 20 minutes in God's word. And I wrestled through it and I tried to spend focused time in God's word. And it was good. I was able to close it. I got in the shower. I was getting ready for my day. And I just used that 30 minutes in the shower. I'm just kidding. It wasn't really 30 minutes. 27. Um, <laughs> I use my time in the shower to be able to just pray. That's when no one else is around me. It's me time. And I could just say, God, this is who I am. Show me who I really am. Here's my sin. Here's where I've seen myself. Please just love me through today. Let me see you. Let me feel you. Let me experience you. It was good. Things were starting to get back on track and I was headed my way into work and I decided to take the long way to work because I just needed a little bit more time with Jesus. I put All Sons and Daughters, which is a band that I love, uh, it's a worship band, I put it on in my car and I spent 15 minutes driving around, 20 minutes driving around to get to work just singing and worshiping. And man, that's all I needed. I needed that refocus. It was really in that moment that the power of everything that Easter Story points to refocuses my life. For all the Jesus followers in this room, when we grow lazy, when we go, grow bored, indifferent, uninterested, or dispirited towards the truth of the Easter story, we will feel extremely unlovable and it will f affect every relationship in our life. If you're not a feelings person, you're like, I don't have any clue what you're talking about because I don't even know that I have feelings. Well, think of it this way. When we neglect the Easter story in our lives, we are unlovable and we drive relationships away from who we are. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I need you to know that the Easter story has the power to make sense of everything in your life that seems confusing. I know that seems like a pie in the sky promise, but I'm not going to say it makes everything feel good, but I will say to you that it will make everything make sense. Jesus being the Messiah simply means that he is the deliverer. So, to help us see this, the power behind the Easter story, we're going to walk through some key verses in Hebrews chapter 2, and then we're going to um, see how the writer points to Jesus as the Messiah, the writer of the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you spent a lot of time reading this book, but it is an extremely beautiful book. He beautifully connects Jesus to the Old Testament promises. He spends time and he calls Jesus greater than all of the Old Testament 
prophets. If you know the Old Testament well, you know the, the, the prophets declared the name of Jesus, or sorry, declared the name of God and pointed the nation of Israel back in the right direction. And uh, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is greater than any prophet that has ever lived. He calls Jesus separate than, but also greater than all of the angels. The angels in the Old Testament that made true the realities that God was proclaiming, Jesus is other than and also greater than all of those angels. He calls Jesus our great high priest, which in a huge way connects the entire Old Testament and sets up the Jewish system all to Jesus. He calls Jesus also the founder and the perfecter of our faith. If you spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews, this author, is warn, the, this author is warning to us is extremely clear, and it is to do not neglect the great salvation that Jesus has given you. This is a warning that we need to hear because we so easily neglect it when we let the weight of life drive us away from our Savior. Let's walk through some things that we see here in the book of Hebrews, starting um, chapter 2 and verse 9. Let's read verse 9 and 10 together and start there. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So this really speaks into the humanity of Jesus. He is greater than the angels. Chapter 1 points to the fact that he is greater than all the angels. But for a time, he is made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The first thing that I would like for us to see is we, in uh, recognizing that we do not want to be apathetic towards the power of the uh, Easter story, is we cannot miss the Messiah had to suffer. The question is why? Why did the Messiah have to suffer? And the first thing I want to point to is because God said that he would. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, everything in the Old Testament sets Jesus up extremely well to be the Messiah. We can look really clearly in Isaiah 53, um, and the whole chapter points to Jesus being the suffering servant, and there's so much good that we see in this. But I just want to look at Isaiah 53, uh, verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 together, and um, this is, is what it says. And let's just notice God's call for Jesus to suffer. It says, He, looking forward to Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born our, uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we look at this Messiah hanging on the cross, suffering, and we're saying, is this him? Is this the Messiah? Verse 5. But he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that bore us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
that is the truth. That is the thing that we understand when we know that Jesus had to suffer. God said it must be so if you are going to experience this great salvation, if you're going to experience joy ultimately. So, most importantly, because God said it was, would be, secondly, don't miss the Messiah had to suffer. He did so to prove himself sinless. If Jesus was not man, and if Jesus was not sinless, then he was just a good man that died on the cross. But he had to become man, and he had to prove himself sinless by walking through many weaknesses, We can look at that whenever he started his journey in the wilderness and his whole life's journey as it unfolds in the gospel accounts sees so much pain that goes his way as well as joy that goes his way ending with his life being taken which ultimately proves his sinlessness and gives him the spot of being our redeemer and our savior. Thirdly, Messiah had to suffer to identify with us in our weakness. Hebrews is going to walk us here more clearly, so we're going to hang on to that one, but don't forget that that's part of it as well. And lastly, don't miss it, the Messiah had to suffer. He did so to bring salvation for all who believe. And this leads us right into uh, our next point, that uh, we cannot miss that the Messiah had to die. Not only did the Messiah have to suffer, the Messiah had to die. Let's skip down to Hebrews chapter um, 2, verse 14, and see it there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. This is saying that we are made of flesh and blood, and Jesus also was made of flesh and blood. He was human and yet fully God in this moment. Fully human, fully God. So, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The reason why Jesus had to to die, why this Messiah had to die, is because it points all the way back to the um, Old Testament, the very first promise that Jesus gave us in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 comes after the fall of man, and as God is speaking to Adam and Eve after the fall, he gives them many truths along the way. This is where the fall will impact you, woman. This is where the fall will impact you, man. And in the midst of that, in Genesis 3.15 is the first promise that he ever gives us, that he knows that sin and death has entered into the world through the choice of Adam and Eve, but he also said that I will come and redeem it. I will come and save it. God says to the serpent, you are going to bruise the heel of Eve's offspring, but he is going to crush your head. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Also, we know in this very same story that the consequences of Adam's sin is death. Both spiritual death and physical death. Yes, man was never created to die. We were created to live with God forever. And when, sin, when Adam sinned, 
Death entered into our world. That's where death began. But notice that Adam and Eve did not die in that moment. They were not wiped out of the face of the earth. We know there's something greater going on, a spiritual separation from God, that we are spiritually dead as well. Jesus had to die because of the death that we experienced through the sin of Adam. And we know that, lastly, that Satan's biggest lethal weapon that he has over us is the power of death. Um, we find fear when we start thinking about our end. Many of us in this room fear the way we are going to die but there are a number of us in this room and all across the world that have some kind of hope and reality that God may be real. And if he is real, how in the world can I know this God and can I make my way to him? So not only do we fear our physical end and what the pain is going to bring, we also fear, am I going to be good enough to be in the presence of God? And as we understand what Jesus has done on the cross, why he had to suffer and why he had to die, we will understand ourselves in the midst of those great questions that we find rescue and redemption in him because of what he has accomplished for us. I love what um, Romans chapter 8 says about this. For us, as followers of Jesus, when Satan tries to hold over us the fear of death, he says to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31b, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he also, or now also with him graciously give us all things? Whom shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice these things that, that the Apostle Paul puts out before us. Should these things separate us from God's love and who, knowing who we are in him? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor anything to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why our Savior, our Messiah, had to die. It's because a blood sacrifice is was needed to redeem you and to redeem me back into relationship with God himself. Let's look at verse 14 and also read 15. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And through his death, for Verse 15, deliver all of those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. 
Christ's death delivered us from the slavery that we have in fearing death itself. Romans 8 paints a beautiful picture of where we need to run when the voice of Satan in our lives speaking lies against who we are as Jesus' followers. We can say it is because of this Easter week that we know that we have life in him. Moving on to our third point. Don't miss what this means for us as the church, for us as followers of Jesus. Verse 16 continues. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps through his death, through delivering those from the power of, fear, of the fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It is not for the, um, for the created um, angels. Sorry, I'm going to go the other way. Uh, salvation is not for the created angels. But salvation itself was for you and me, created in God's image here on earth. Salvation is for the offspring of Abraham. I will argue to the day that I die that God's love for all people is his common grace. That all humans who walk on the face of the earth experience the love of God. And John 3.16 is so true that for, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And yes, it is so true that we can generally speak to this about the entire world. The sun comes up because of his great love and mercy for us. The rain falls to make things grow because of his great love and mercy for us. We have beauty in the mountains, in the oceans because of his great love for us. Romans says it is all these things that declare the truth and the reality of who God really is. This is called common grace for the unbeliever and for the believer alone. What we need to understand is that when God removes himself from creation itself, if he were ever able to remove remove himself fully from our experience here on earth, that we would not be able to see the beauty in any of it. But it is God's grace that allows us to see it. So God's love for all of his people is amazing, for all of his creation is amazing, which we see through Crawman's grace. God's love for his children is different than for the rest of the world. Notice here in this verse that surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So as we follow the, the children of the promise, we know that there is uh, uh, Ishmael, right? And there's Isaac, right? And we could follow the, the, the children of promise, not down Ishmael's um, uh, family line, but down Isaac's family line. But he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. We can read Romans 9 and see very clearly that it is a special love he has for his children that he calls his own. I can only compare this to the love that I have for my own children. Is the way that he loves his children differently. I love every single one of you, but um, I may not lay my life down for you. But my own kids and my wife, you better bet you I will do anything to protect them because they are mine. God's given them to me, and they are my responsibility. Much in the same way, we see the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, which you and I belong to through the lineage of Christ. And we say God's love is different for us. God's love for us is adoptive love. 
to make this a little bit more real, I can only think that if God's love for me is the same as Bashar al-Assad, the leader in Syria, someone like the leader in Syria, there's nothing redeeming in that for me. If God loves someone like that exactly the same that he loves me, I find no power to be able to get up in the morning. But because of God's adoptive love for me as his child, I can get up experiencing the full measure of the grace he intends me to understand and to get. And when we overgeneralize God's love for us, we become apathetic to the power of this Easter story in our lives. So do not miss what this means for his church. And lastly, do not miss what Christ's death accomplished. Continuing to read in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he had to be made human, again, in every respect. Fully human, fully God. So that he might become merciful and faithful as a high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do not miss what God's death accomplished. Jesus had to become human to be our great high priest. That is extremely important for us to understand, but we need to understand more so what that accomplished for us. This, there's an extremely big word here in this verse, the propitiation for sins, and it is not really a word that uh, is too big for us to grasp or for us to understand. Propitiation, what he's meaning here is that Christ is taking away God's anger from us because of our sin. His death, he bore the guilt and shame and the punishment for us. The punishment of death was laid upon him and not us. The wrath of God that God had towards our sin and ultimately towards us, he put upon Christ on the cross so that we may be seen as redeemed and free by the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we make this truth personal? How do we apply it? How do we not neglect this great salvation? In an article I came across this week by John Piper, I couldn't say it better myself, so I'm just going to read it. Speaking of the power of death that Satan has over all of creation, but what does it mean for us as Jesus followers? He says, if your sin is forgiven and the wrath of God Almighty is turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. Let's stop there for a second. How many days in the week do we feel like the power of sin has been disarmed? How many days of the week is the truth of the reality that the power of our sin has been disarmed? We allow Satan more power in our lives than we think that we do. Continuing on. The one deadly, lethal tactic Satan has as he, um, uh, sorry, the, the one deadly, lethal tactic he um, he has is to accuse you of sin and keep you sinning and keep you away from Christ who forgives sins and removes the wrath of God. If you sin, if your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand righteous before God in Jesus Christ by faith 
and God is for you and not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. Where does Satan still have hold on our lives? He does not have the power of death over us anymore because we know that as God's adoptive children, as we've surrendered our lives to him, that, he, that we, do not, um, we are not separated from our God in death anymore. We are reconciled back to God here uh, in life on earth as well as when our life here ends. We will live eternally with our Father. But yet as we still walk here on earth, the bolded part just brings so true in my life. The one deadly, lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin and keep you sinning, to keep you away from Christ who forgives you. This is where I was last week. I was in the point of believing the lie by myself that I didn't even know was real in the moment, that I just felt so unlovable. How in the world can my kids continue to love me? How can my wife continue to love me? How can God continue to keep pouring into me? How much more does he have left in his tank for me? As we read scripture, we know that it's endless. We cannot let the power that Satan has still on earth to lead us astray, away from the one who saves us. I close with this point. Our challenge is to do not miss resting in Jesus. Where you are today, in your feeling and understandings of who Jesus is in your life. If you were able to transport yourself back to the triumphal entry when Jesus was walking on the uh, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, my question for you, would you be one who would catch wind of that and run to be at the feet of Jesus laying down palm branches declaring, "God save us. Oh God, save us." Or would we be the one who heard that Jesus is coming? And because we feel so far away from this God who saves, we don't even know how he's going to receive us when he looks at us in the face. What if he kept a glimpse of me? Is he going to call me out in the crowd? Is he going to just roll his eyes when he sees me? And we choose to stay in our house instead of laying down the palm branches at the feet of Jesus as he comes as the conquering king in the way that scripture has declared it. cannot miss in resting in Jesus so that we do not miss those moments in our lives and so that we are fully ready whenever he comes again as we're studying in the book of Revelation. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I want I want to close this section up by just jumping over to chapter 4, looking at verse 4. 14, 15, and 16 because it ends it so powerfully and so well, seeing ourselves in the grace of Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to the declaration of who he is. Let's not be robbed from who God is in our lives. Don't let Satan lie to us about our own identity, but rest in the truth of who he really is. So let us hold 
fast to our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect is being tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you were in the crowd when Jesus walked, rode by on a donkey and he saw you face to face, there would be nothing but complete compassion, love, and mercy in his eyes for you as his child. And you need to believe that. And it is because of what he accomplished on the cross. It is because he had to suffer. It is because he had to die. It is because he loves his church and redeems his church to himself. And we get to see that he bore our wrath. And he walks with us day in and day out, sympathizing with us in our struggles, in our weaknesses, in our doubts, in our feelings. I wish I could say and declare to you that I'm never going to feel the way I felt on Monday morning ever again, but who knows? It may come tomorrow morning for all I know. I just have to rest in the promise of what God has called me to. I want to close our time by um, preparing us to take communion together as a church, hearing the gospel so clearly that this is what Jesus' journey has, was all about. We have an opportunity to react, and we have an opportunity to respond and no matter what your feelings are when you walked in this morning or what your choices have declared about you walking in this morning, if you are his own, this communion is to remember his death until the day that he comes. So as our ushers are ready, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And they are coming forward with the, the bread right now. So we will be taking part of eating the bread together and drinking the juice together. The night before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, he sat with his disciples and he communed with them in a very same way. He said, remember me. I'm about to go to a place that you will never understand until it's already happened and gone. But remember me. Walk with me. And that is what we get a chance to do by remembering the broken body of Jesus together. So ushers, will you do me a favor and please pass out the elements?